Howdy, y'all, and welcome to The Great State of Innovation, the podcast of Texas Innovators with me, your host, Cole Carpenter, and I will be joined by my co-host, Judge Gwynn, where we will cover innovation happening in the ninth largest economy in the world, the great state of Texas. Howdy, y'all. We're here today with another episode of The Great State of Innovation, the podcast of Texas Innovators. It's me, your host, Cole Carpenter, and I'm joined by my co-host, Judge Gwynn. How's it going, Judge? What's up? What's what's new this week? Well, Cole, what's new this week is a new year. It's 2022. I'm really excited to be here with you for another year and for the second year of TXI. Yeah, it's uh, very exciting. You know, it kind of you know, growing the platform, building the community, and exploring and seeing what the future holds for Texas innovation. It's definitely an exciting time, and hopefully, uh, you know, we can come out of come out come into twenty twenty two with uh, new perspectives and uh, new drive for for the future. So, really excited, and you know, we've been doing a lot of things and a lot of busy stuff going on. Uh, CES twenty twenty two, Judge, what's what's going on there? Yeah, so to start this new year, uh, our team, Kylie Halsey, Jason Halsey, uh, and our production team, 44 Productions, went out there to Las Vegas and went to CES 2022, the Consumer Electronics Show. Uh, and they went there with the goal of highlighting every Texan that hits that stage. And so far, if you've been keeping up with our content this week on the site, we're hitting that goal. Uh, we got a lot in the pipeline and uh, got to speak to a lot of cool innovators out there in Vegas that brought that Texas feel with them to Sin City. So, Please stay tuned for all the coverage we have by hitting TXInnovators.com. We have a cool interview with Justin Tupper, who is the Senior Vice President at NBC Sports and Golf Pass. So if you're a golf fanatic like many of us are here in Texas, you should definitely check that out and educate yourself a little bit on the innovations and technology that are driving the future of the sport. Just may be that much easier to get out and play your favorite game as we head into 2022, thanks to Golf Pass. Some other coverage we had, our team got to be there for the unveiling of the Silverado EV, GM's first all-electric version of the famed Texas pickup. This is big for everybody. I mean, Texas, one in five trucks have purchased in Texas. We have a great story on the site now if you want to go hit it, look at latest news. But one in five trucks have purchased in Texas. The Chevy Silverado is the fourth most popular vehicle in the state of Texas. But the second most popular vehicle in the state of Texas is the Ford F-150, which is interesting. So Earlier this year in May, Ford announced the Lightning, uh, which is their all-electric pickup. So this was GM's answer to Ford, uh, hopefully breaking in that Silverado into that second or top spot in Texas for vehicle choices. But CES was a really cool experience. We're going to have Jason on next week to kind of recap all the stuff they got to see out there, all the people they got to talk to in Vegas and how much they grew the platform. Because this week was massive for us, for social media. Uh, Our site numbers were really big this week. So just want to say thank you to our audience for continuing to engage with our written content, video content, and of course, our audio content here on the Great State of Innovation podcast. Got a great interview coming up for y'all next uh, with TJ Falahoon. If you're an avid reader of the site, you are probably already familiar with TJ and his platform, Olera, which is setting out to revolutionize elder care. Cole and I had a great conversation with TJ, kind of spoke with him a little bit about how Olera came to be and some of his motivation for starting this platform and why, as a 27 year old biomedical engineer, he chooses to focus on end of life. Um, and it was just really cool perspective with TJ. Cole, I feel like you got a lot out of that conversation as well, just speaking with him, uh, kind of his, some of his philosophies on being mortal and uh, some of the topics we dove into. Yeah, I, he's a really cool guy. And also, he, I mean, he's very successful as far as, you know, his education, the things that he's done. And 
I think y'all will get some you know cool insight and in, into you know end of life care and you know what what that means for us and what that means for the people in our families as well as just you know the the cool innovations happening in healthcare and getting TJ's perspective and hearing about his story is, is cool in and of itself. Keeping up with him is definitely worth doing as far as I see him as being um, you know, a leader in, in Texas innovation is like what he's doing, what his vision is, and also seems like a great guy, you know, just uh, genuine and genuinely cares about what he's doing and is a very passionate entrepreneur. So we always love and bringing and highlighting uh, those stories of innovation and and, you know, creating a more intimate connection with those driving Texas innovation. And, you know, more on Olera, I think the platform, if you or anyone you know in your family or anyone in your community is experiencing or heading into the end of their life is in need of at-home care or any form of care, I think Olera is a, a platform that is a solution to the overwhelming nature of planning the end-of-life care. So and I, I see, you know, a, a huge path for for other value in other communities that can be positively impacted by by the developments of, of Alara's platform. So, all in all, I think uh, it was a, it's going to be a great conversation, and uh, we're looking forward to highlighting TJ and you know, getting that story out there and providing a community for those who maybe feel alone in, in that journey that that overwhelming journey of providing for for someone who you know, needs extra care and attention. So, all in all. Looking forward to the conversation and hearing TJ's story. Be sure to check out our coverage of CES 2022 on TXInnovators.com. And now we'll turn to our conversation with TJ Falahoon and his Olera platform. We have a very special guest today, TJ Falahoon, to discuss his Olera platform, which is a platform that you know provides resources and, and benefits for those who have People who are elderly in their in their family who need elder care. What's up, TJ? What's up, Judge? How are we how are we doing today, y'all? Hey, how's it going? Really excited to be here today. Yeah, we're doing great, TJ. Thanks for coming on. Um, if you if you are an avid reader of our site, TXInnovators.com, you've probably seen our story over TJ and Olera. Um, and what they're doing is trying to revolutionize the elder care space, which is an innovation that we definitely have never touched on outside of TJ on our platform or this podcast. And one that I don't think many people talk about TJ or really think about until they're in those shoes. Um, so just want to, before we dive into Olera and everything about that, TJ, just want to let you open yourself up to our audience. Tell them a little bit about yourself, your journey, and how you got to where you are today with your brand. Absolutely. Thanks for thanks for inviting me on. And yeah, you're right. No, this is this is a space that is very overlooked. This is one that many people don't consider. I didn't really think about it much until I delved into it. And now this is all I think about. So <laughs> it's a funny transition there. But about myself. So my name is TJ Falahoon. I am a Nigerian immigrant. I'm now, you know, here in Texas A&M University, but it's been quite the journey to get here. So this is a bit of a brief history. I I moved to the U.S. when I was 11 years old. My dad was a diplomat. And before moving here, we traveled to a bunch of different places. His job was essentially to be a political representative of Nigeria and other countries, like handling whatever matter between Nigeria and said country. So I moved to the U.S. when I was 11 because we wanted something more steady. We wanted something that would be 
beneficial for like a long-term education and so forth. So I moved to Baltimore, Maryland, where I attended high school. I did my undergrad in the University of Maryland, College Park. And between high school and undergrad was where I really developed a strong interest for medical technology. I received this pamphlet when I was in high school, and it, it had a, a picture of an artificial heart. And I was like, whoa, this, this looks really, I, I had no idea whether or not it worked or anything about that, but I just had a strong feeling as, as to, you know, that as being like my calling, not necessarily the heart itself, but just medical technology. So in undergrad, you know, I, I also had a chance to participate in a few programs, few entrepreneurship-like programs, and I, I, I saw that it was something that I was interested in, but I didn't really take it too seriously. So after undergrad, I then worked for Pfizer. The, I was working for one of their, uh, one of the companies that they owned, working on research and design on auto injectors, some of their drug delivery systems. If you're familiar with the EpiPen, that dispenses epinephrine to those who are going through anaphylactic shock. I was working on the internal components of auto injectors, essentially. So that was a really interesting journey because I, I got a chance to learn about what it's like to be in you know, a larger company that produces technologies to improve health you know, and how to do that well, because Pfizer does it extremely well. So then after that, I returned back to grad school and I came to Texas A&M because I was really fascinated by the research being done here as well as just everything else going on. A&M is a huge university with numerous programs and excellent resources and also really nice people frankly uh, I, I yeah yeah it's it's almost shocking how nice people are here so <laughs> hey this is the, uh, <laughs> if ties and will any listener of this podcast knows how much we love a&m i'm a, a big aggie as tj knows so we uh we love everything aggie and everything texas a&m and like you said there's so much great research here going on and the bims program at a&m is, is fantastic um and I, I believe you got your master's in biomedical engineering so uh, it being in that engineering program as well uh, at that level uh just speaks to kind of the magnitude uh, and the expertise that uh, Alera has from its founders. So talked a little bit about you, TJ, and your journey, but how elder care, you know, how did you get to this point where, you know, you, you mentioned that you, you felt it was your passion for medical devices and medical technologies, but what was the drive for starting Olera specifically? Definitely. It started off with a student organization through uh, the at Texas A&M University called Slink Health. Myself and a number of other students, we, we joined the organization because we were interested in creating new technologies to improve human health, right? And there were different projects, there was different areas that teams surrounded around. Um, some teams were working on cardiac devices, some teams were working on um, some other devices that related to cancer. Our team, we got on the idea of dementia and Alzheimer's. That was the original like core of the project we were working on. And we all had different reasons for doing that. Some of our founders had family members directly affected by dementia and Alzheimer's. Me, I, I read a book called Being Mortal that, that really, um, it 
motivated me to look closely at the elder care space because I was scared by what laid ahead because the author really exposed some of the deficiencies of our current system. So immediately after reading that book, I, I got the sense that this is an area that is overlooked. So immediately that opportunity arose in Sling Health on campus. Um, and my background with, with Read and Be Mortal, as well as some other um, family history events. You know, some we had some members of my family who are in this stage of life. And we have a lot of stress in, in thinking about what's best for them. So it, it was just an alignment of different variables that that motivated me to to you know join the team. So essentially, just to backtrack a little bit, at Texas A&M University, there's a student organization called called Sling Health that brings together students in engineering, students in medicine, and students in business to solve medical problems, clinical problems, and create solutions that can translate to like real world products. And this was the organization that essentially started the core team. You know, we had a very unique journey because some other, you know, some other founders, it's more so, you know, maybe you had a roommate, maybe you um, just met someone at some other networking events. Ours was directly through a student org, but obviously we, we went past that. So I think that's a really unique trait of our team. And now, you know, we continue to grow. You know, we started there, but we've definitely added some other folks on. So it's been it's been a really exciting path so far. And it's the real the the variety of variables that align to form our team is part of our founding story. And that, yeah, and I, I really love how you touched on Sling there, TJ, because a lot of people don't know about those kind of programs that reside at A&M or UT or wherever you have it um, that connect all of those bright minds in these, in these STEM areas to one and provide an opportunity for you and your team, TJ, to literally develop a product and a brand while you're in school uh, and kind of get the, the ball rolling while you're here with all the resources that A&M can provide. Uh, but as we're talking about Olera and how I got it start and your team, TJ, frame the problem for our audience. You know, what is the typical scenario where uh, a caregiver would utilize Olera? Absolutely. So when, when we have an elder loved one who is in a stage in life where they need professional care, say someone has dementia and Alzheimer's and they no longer are able to drive a car, or say someone suffers from a stroke and their ability to walk is now impaired and they need someone to you know, help them out with daily activities. What usually happens is a family member has to step up, right? You might have an adult child so you have the daughter of that individual who likely has a full-time job, who probably also has their own family. They now have another job, essentially, which is to take care of these elder, um, this elder loved one. And that, that's difficult because the current landscape puts the burden on the individual. There isn't like a straightforward path to do this. There are different industries within elder care. Right. Like if you want to understand what the plan is, you might talk to a discharge planner at the hospital or you might talk to um, a case manager. Right. If you want to understand 
who is like which type of facility they need um if you want to figure out if you're in the uh if you want to figure out like what type of nursing home or what type of assisted living facility you have to call different assisted living facilities to compare your different options and they're all trying to sell you on their product so you don't know how to compare a to b you know you, you don't know whether or not to believe you know the the statistics or whatever features they're selling you on if you want to figure out like which um insurance is best for your situation and whether or not um it's available what care is available is affordable to you you then have to call another um professional in this care in this case you might call you know a medicaid expert so all of these things and and this is if, if this is if you know all of these factors in the first place so what we're doing is we're bringing all of that in in one umbrella we're providing a service that connects family caregivers, that connects the families of individuals caring for an elder loved one to professionals that can help them in their journey. And we're also providing a roadmap to guide them through the elder care landscape in order to reduce the burden of caring for an elder loved one and for them to provide the best care they need because it varies dramatically, right? Like if you have someone who needs minimal care, Say, you know, for the most part, they're dependents, but it would be really nice if you can have someone come in twice a day, maybe in the morning and the, the evening, just to check on them because you're in a different county. That's dramatically different from someone who has advanced dementia and can no longer feed themselves. Right. In the latter case, you might have to you might have to check them into memory care or they might need if, if you prefer to stay at home, you may need the full time, you know in-home medical aid, right? How in the world do you know that? And how in the world do you find a certified high quality in-home medical aid, right? These are these are very difficult challenges. Also, there's a lot of guilt that people feel in this situation, right? So they 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 take on way more than they should in many cases. And many family caregivers don't even know who to reach out to. So you know, we what we're doing is we're simplifying the logistics, but we also hope to add a degree of transparency to an otherwise opaque industry. So I hope that clarifies somewhat long. No, yeah, I think that sets it up perfectly, TJ. We talked about you wouldn't really think of this till you're in those shoes, or if you, you know, say your, you know, your mother comes down with dementia and now you're her primary caregiver, but you have no experience in the medical field, like you're, you know, like you're explaining. Where do you go? How do you even know what to Google to get to the right place? So um, it, yeah. it must be nice for caregivers once you know Alara is fully up and operational. You can just go in there and you can type in whatever you may need for your loved one and get real time accurate and most times I assume affordable the most affordable results possible. Um, and so, so yeah, we definitely want to match people to the services that falls within what they can afford. And this is actually one of the biggest pain points because of our our health insurance situation in the U.S is is a mess to be right, honest <laughs> it's, it's it's difficult to wrap your head around you know even if you're knowledgeable in this area you still get overwhelmed by the options so helping people to know you know what's most relevant and things to consider for people in their insurance situation or not you know lack of insurance situation is 
is of tremendous value. Definitely. That just goes further into relieving that burden. Even if, you know, you, like you said, like you're taking on essentially another full-time job on top of your daily priorities. So you won't even just having the capacity to find these resources, it's about having the energy and, and sometimes the sanity, you know, to go yeah. through this and uh, to, just to take care of that one you love. We talked a, we talked a little bit in our in our conversation a month ago, TJ, about how it's Alera doesn't necessarily bring any new technology innovations, but it, it's incorporating other innovations um, into its platform. So, is there? I, I I saw in the writing that y'all have like a personalization algorithm. Is there like any AI that's being leveraged? Because I assume that you know once you have more inputs in the system, it, it learns and builds off that and provides you know more recommendations. Like what? is the basis of your platform? What is the functionality? I mean, of course, not getting into your IP or anything, but just any basics, like how how does it work? Like how does a layer work and how does it get better over time? Right, that's, a, that's an excellent question. This is one of those topics that I, I had no idea the level of complexity involved until you, know, you start doing it. And, and the problems are all really framed by, or sorry, the solutions are all framed by the problem that we have to solve. So in the first place, you have this massive ecosystem of providers, right? And we have you know, everything from transportation services to nursing homes, to assisted living, to memory care, to you know, independent living, there's all, there's all types of elder care services, some of, who have, some of which have different levels of information out there. So, we have to figure out a way to standardize all of this information. And then we have to figure out a way to feed each piece of information to the right caregiver profile. And then we also have to create these profiles through a set level of personalization questions. And then we also have to present the information in a way that isn't too overwhelming, right? So we have to think about like trickling out information slowly over time, right? And then we also have to make sure that we provide the top kind. So within one domain of provider, we have to rank them and give you like the top rank and like reverse final or reverse priority order, right? Like say there are 10 in-home care aides in your area and that's what you're looking for. How do we pick? A versus B, right? There are different metrics we can use. Medicaid has different different star ratings, right? And we have there are also different APIs, uh, application program interfaces that we can pull from. So I, I'm saying all of this to say just to like give you a flavor of, of the different challenges that that we're doing. But our 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 biggest our biggest obstacle we have to overcome is is making sure like the core functionality of our platform works beautifully, right? And that core functionality is you go on, you put in your information and we give you the right recommendations. And what that practically means is we ask a key set of personalization questions, right? And we also give you the option to skip that, that, that process so you can maybe see a non-personalized recommendations for, for those who just want to delve in. But, you know, the core, we, we ask a key set of questions and then we use those questions to form a profile. And that profile 
we then are able to tie into a massive database of like hundreds of thousands of providers and 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 provide you you know a list of 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 the best matches that's like the core of what we do so for that we have a great team that that works on some of the back end in everything from setting up our database to making sure that we update that over time to keeping it secure, you know, making sure it's encrypted both at rest and, and in transit. And then we also have people working on the design. Design is critical here, right? We obsess over like the smallest things, like the shades of, of teal, right? And and like, does, does this box have a drop shadow? Does this not? But is the font friendly, you know? I never really thought about how friendly a font is, but it's really important because um, ultimately we don't want to provide just like a long list of things for people to read that is going to scare people off, right? So we're also, we have a video library that we're building out. So, you know, we have the back end, we have the front end, we have the design. We also have um, individuals working on the UX experience, right? So thinking about when someone comes on the service, what are they looking for and what are the likely actions that they're, they're going to do when they look at the web page and when they visit next time, you know, they already have a set of things they, that they know. So maybe they want to go straight to a certain aspect of the platform, making sure that's super easy. Right. So those are some of the challenges that, that we've been thinking about. And, and those are some of the strategies that we're currently experimenting with. What's really cool is we're building this with caregivers, not just doing it in isolation and then, then releasing it. And we, we built this into our SBIR journey. SBIR is the, the grants that, that, that we received. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in a bit. But we are doing this, this process where we build, we test, we build, we test, we build, and we test, right? And we're working with a group of 25 family caregivers and we, we, we build something really fast and we show them, we get their input and based on their input, we iterate and then we show it to them and the group of 25 and we iterate. And then on that process, when we finish like a, a, a long set of experiments, we then release it to still a limited audience but a bigger limited audience then you know we plan to do a full release by the close to the end of the year so that limited audience release we plan we plan to do that you know mid-summer and now until mid-summer we're doing those build and test build and test cycles so that goes along with you know one of my other questions i was going to ask is like what's the path to growing the platform and it seems like you know iteration after iteration and just having split testing and Various things like that, you know, just having inputs from the community, like like you said, those twenty five uh, caregivers, and um, so like what overall, like, is that the path you are sticking to, just iterating it and iterating, or do you all have kind of a roadmap to where you all want to get once you get this kind of the foundation of the platform set up? Is there um, like, are you going to be serving other communities outside of like end of life care, such as like intellectually and physically physically disabled communities, or what, what does that look like? Is um, yeah, what does that process look like for you? Right. Building our 
relationships and expanding our audience is, is definitely something that will be of a high degree of focus um, over the next year or so. And we're, we're currently doing that by not only working with the group that we're currently working with, with the, with the building and testing, but we're building out educational materials on, on our website and also emphasizing topics that are commonly not discussed, right? Like what happens when you can't afford an elder law attorney, but you need to consider a will or an estate management plan, right? They always say, talk to an attorney. That's, that's definitely good advice. You should do that. But what do you do when you can't afford one? Because they do cost like hundreds per hour. Those are the topics that people just like skirt around. <laughs> so so we're, we're tackling those head on and we're using that to also reach an unmet market, right? We're, we're, we're making materials, educational materials that that we think are serving an audience that, that is overlooked. And we hope that that would be a growth vehicle. We're also networking with some care support groups. You know, that's something that, that we think works very well for us because these are groups that genuinely are supportive of initiatives like what we're working on because they understand the challenges. So, you know, we can directly reach out to them, not only to you know get feedback but also to hopefully provide value to them and in, in, you know with some of the technology we're building and that's also another growth vehicle and you know just continuing to talk to people being in the community every single day i spend some time interacting with family caregivers because there's nothing like speaking to your your end user so those are just some strategies that that we see and we're not pushing extremely hard yet with with growth of our platform because we're so focused on technology developments, you know, while communicating with with our end users, of course. But you know, we're not in the phase where we're marketing heavy, so you know, so to speak. But in terms of the future of, of Olera, you know, end of life is definitely a strong emphasis right now, and I think rightfully so. There's so much within this space. But long term, there, there are many people who can benefit from what we're building. You know, the engine which we eventually will have is one that can take in set of information, like pieces of information, and spit out recommendations that are best for you that are related to the field of care. And, and that, that has very powerful applications outside of this. So, you know. We're really excited for what the potential is there. But as of now, you know, we haven't delved into that because we don't want to lose focus on on what is directly ahead of us, which is the elder care industry. I guess I want to, you know, kind of fo- switch focus or not really switch focus, but put an emphasis on, you know, mortality. And I want you to you mentioned this earlier, the, the book being mortal and how it framed the idea of Rolera. But. Could you just dive into you know being mortal and like what the book's about, I guess, and what kind of influences like what was most impactful for you in reading that to get this whole venture started and um you know and why is there such a taboo around end of life planning like what what 
why do not people why don't people want to talk about this why don't why are people kind of hesitant or don't really put much thought into it until they need it you know all right it's, it's an excellent book i've read it maybe maybe five times now <laughs> but i i reread books in general so maybe that's not uh you know i feel like it, it that might sound crazier than what it actually is for me it's, it's not it's not abnormal but but the book is special because it it demystifies or let's say it it, it makes it less intimidating to, to think about the topic of, of end of life because no matter who you are no matter how how you know young or old you might be healthier or unhealthy you might be eventually you will reach a stage in your life where you're seriously going to consider you know who who is available to care for you or you're going to consider you know whether or not you have a support system and you're also going to consider death you know no matter who you are that's something that lays ahead in the future and what the book does that i think is special is it frames what is otherwise seen as taboo right because in our society there's a lot of glorification of youth there is a lot of um hey this is a sad topic i'm not going to bring it up you know when you ask people how they're doing in general everyone wants to say that it's great right people are <laughs> it's rare for people to be honest and just say hey you know i'm pretty sad right now right how what was the last time you heard that like <laughs> when you ask someone how they're doing hey i'm sad <laughs> but like what what percentage would you say uh, of people who are sad it's it's probably not zero it's probably not 20% it's probably close to like you know 40 to 60% <laughs> but what we hear it's 0% of the time and i think the topic of of you know aging the topic of end of life it's it has that sim it has that flavor people deal with it in isolation because for some reason it has become uh, emotionally, let's say, difficult to discuss this. And to be fair, it's understandable because sometimes you have to build the skill to do something, right? You have to build a skill to talk about, um, you know, what might otherwise be a difficult topic to broach right I, I i heard this once when i was i was doing like this peer counseling thing where when people tell you like not to make this um, much darker but when people tell you they're considering suicide right what do you say in that situation all right it's 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 a difficult it's a skill you have to build is the point i'm trying to make it's a skill you have to build and if you've never had to do that before you might get caught off guard and you might awkwardly change the topic because you don't know what to do end of life might is similar in many ways right if, if you have an, a loved one who is going through something and you want to talk about it it's it's like a skill you have to build and our society has not developed that skill so i think overall it's this is a topic that i can see it taken some time for like our public 
to embrace. But ultimately, I do think it will be done because um, it's 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 just so important to our everyday lives. And I think society goes through phases. In other societies or also in, you know, of, of different mindsets and in, in like some of the Asian cultures, it's it's not so taboo to consider end of life care and elders are seen as a critical part of society. Right. It's not weird to talk about aging in our society. That's not the case. Youth is, is definitely glorified. But. I think our society eventually might move closer towards this topic. And that's what we hope to do um, with, with what we're, the work that we do in Olera. What that book, what, what, what the immortal did for me was it, it really illuminated what I realized was just an overlooked sector. That's so critical to our everyday lives. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks for providing that insight. And uh, yeah, I agree with you as far as, you know, it's not taboo in all cultures, but in ours, it seems to, as far as thinking about, you know, end of life and death, and something that should be avoided or to be talked about. But in reality, yeah, like you said, it's, we're all going to, we're all going to die eventually. So, uh, right. You know, it's, there's this study, I can't remember what it was, but they mentioned how, I wish I could think about the term right now, but maybe I'll get back to you on this. There is there's this thing where, if you ask someone their age, right, they they give you a number and sometimes it's above or below the real age. In recent years, maybe the past like decade and a half, the average age that someone says they are when you ask them is lower than their actual age, right? I can't remember when it was, but way back, that was the opposite was true. People would say they're actually older because it was cooler to be older, right? But, and that, that goes to show that there is a certain mental shift that's going on. And, you know, the, the conversation has shifted over time. So there's both the different societies and then there's the time over, that there's a time-induced change in one society. So it's like a confound it's like a combination of different variables at the same time. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Yeah, it just goes to show the power of society and what it and uh, the influence it has on our view of life and approach to life. So, but that's a whole nother topic that we could dive into for a whole nother episode. But. <laughs> Part two in the podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, kind of switching gears. Earlier, you mentioned the. Uh, the SBIR, the Small Business Innovation Research, and the grant that you received, and you know, grant writing and you know applying for grants is such a big thing, especially for you know, startups or you know, nonprofits, and it's a, an interesting world. I mean, people their full time jobs is writing and being a grant writer. So we wanted to dive in, like, what did that process look like, and what, what kind of value does that the grant provide for the platform? What kind of timeline or process applying for that grant take, and what value it provides? Absolutely. The, the grant process was, it was intense, to be honest. It took us months to put together the pieces because it's not just about the innovation that you're proposing. It's also how well you present the team that you have. It's also 
the rigor of thought you put into justifying, you know, the innovation that you're proposing. It's the budget. It's like you describing how you're going to use those funds. You also have to describe how, like, the support system you have in place because they don't want to give funds to a group that maybe isn't ready for it, right? And there's also like a scientific rigor that has to go into the plan because ultimately this is a government agency that is full of the reviewers who are reviewing your proposal. They're all PhDs and they're experts in that domain. So they want to see that you understand the literature, that your grasp of the problem is sound because if it's not, it's also going to be problematic when you when you get the funds. So I had to, <laughs> you know, get to essentially become an expert in this area, which means reading a ton and writing a ton, you know, do, making a lot of drafts. What actually helped a lot was being a PhD student, because I do that for other activities, right? Like I've you know, for my master's, I had a thesis and I defended that thesis and I composed a 50 page or 30, 35 page document on my work. And I published papers in peer reviewed journals. So I wasn't all too, um, it, it was a familiar experience for me. So that, that helped. If I didn't have that, I was just going in straight. I would have been a very tough initial you know shock to have to go through that and also we had a really solid team one of our academic ad advisors dr marsha ori she's essentially dedicated her whole life to this area like to to, to aging research she actually has also worked on other projects in in the aging space and immediately we told her that we were considering applying for this Grant, she was like, yes, let's do this. Because it's also refreshing to be an academic who's all on the theoretical end, and you've been on the theoretical end for decades, to see someone, to see a group that is on the practical end that's trying to, you know, you know, make something that, uh, you know, can actually make a difference in the lives of people. So that was a very synergistic collaboration. So that, that, that helped a ton. You know, if we didn't have the support, I don't think we would have received the grant. You know, you really need a strong team. We also had some support from the Alzheimer's Association. You know, so part of this grant is not necessarily just writing the grant itself. It's a networking thing. You know, you have to, have, you have to be able to talk to people and pitch them on what you're working on and hopefully get buy-in. And if you get buy-in, you can then compose a stronger application because you can tell that NIH that, hey, yeah, look, it's not just me. <laughs> you know, I have this army with me and we're going to make this thing happen. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting process. So, but practically speaking, you know, you have a grant application that's, let's say, 20 pages, you know, of half technical, half like business proposition type work. Then you have 
let's say another 20 to 30 pages of other like logistic documents and explaining what you're going to do and human subjects documentation. Then you have other small pieces like getting letters of support from industry partners and getting like CVs and bios ready. And then you also have the process of like doing the registrations as a small business and so forth. So it's, it's, it's an ordeal, but you know, it's definitely worth it because as a small business support, a support system or, you know, uh, a financial booster, like a, like, like a grant from the government is the difference between viability in the early stages and, and, and death, honestly, because you're, you're constantly staring at uh, a finite runway as a startup in terms of the resources that you have. So having this is invaluable in crossing that, that, that gap that you initially have. And the other things that the grant does in terms of what it provides is the validation in the early stages from groups, from a group that, you know, deeply understands the problem. And there are some secondary resources that they provide to support grant recipients because they ultimately want to see that taxpayer dollars are going to somewhere that's ultimately going to translate to something positive. They want to see us grow and hire people and contribute to the American society and become an entity that pays it forward, right? Both in our product and both in our business operations. So with that, they connect us to secondary resources that are not just about our product, but are, are also about some of these other elements that will make us successful as a business. So the the support from the grant is, is, is incredibly valuable. And I encourage all other small businesses or anyone else who's thinking about entrepreneurship to, you know, maybe look at possible SBIR grants that are related, that are related to the domain that you're in, because it can make such a big difference. For sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it seems like in order to get that done, it, you can't do it alone. You have to have a, a lot of people behind you and a big community to kind of push that forward. So, but how do you, um, as far as Alera is concerned, how, like, do you all have a set of priorities as far as deploying that, that grant money? Like what, what kind of areas of focus are y'all putting that towards? And I guess, yeah, as far as rolling out the platform, where, where do you see the priorities as far as that funding? The, key thing for us number one thing is definitely the technology so we have a number of experts a lot of number of software developers that we're working with some designers some user experience experts that we're also working with and their payrolls <laughs> is, is 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 number one <laughs> right now to be honest and rightfully so but we're also we, we also have a high degree of focus on making sure we are providing correct and vetted information. So we're working with people who are also subject matter experts in the field of elder care, Asian, dementia, you know, people who have spent decades working as social workers, people who have been caregivers themselves reviewing everything that we do. So that's also a high priority for us, you know, and 
ultimately, we are also going to be, you know, making sure that when we deploy this, you know, it's a seamless process that we don't have, you know, bugs and glitches. We don't have any technical, you know, uh, wrinkles there. So we, we also have a team, an in-house team that's working closely, you know, with with our with some of the people that are working with outside of our company to make sure that that's done well. Another thing that might not be easy to appreciate initially is is the database, right? Getting the information, you know, sometimes is not straightforward, and um, that's something that can be expensive if if if, if it's a commercial license, uh, you know, of that sort. So. Those are some of the, the bigger areas that we're working on, you know, and just making sure we're able to move fast, making sure that we're able to remove the barriers from the people who are doing the, you know, boots on the ground work. Finding that balance between um, speed and efficiency. Definitely. Exactly. TJ did not mention the amount of that, that grant, which is a $2.3 million grant from the National Institute on Aging. Talked a lot about what you're doing with Alira, TJ, but I want to go ahead and introduce your other product and your other brand to our audience, which is, correct me if I say this wrong, but A-Iris? iris A-Iris. I could have done that. But um, yeah, so A-Iris is um, a low-cost retina imaging for diabetic retinopathy, retinopathy screening. Um, so talk a little bit about what you hope to accomplish with um, with A-Iris and um, how you plan to kind of expand eye care access through this initiative. This is another exciting initiative. This is a lot of great work is being done right now. Like working really hard, really, really hard to get up, you know, to get that out in the public. But what we're working on is a screening tool for diabetes-induced vision loss, which is the number one cause of blindness, preventable blindness in, in, in adults in America. Something like 11% of the population lives with diabetes, and about half of those individuals are um, at risk for this condition. If you live with diabetes long enough, essentially, you will have some degree of your, your vision will be affected by, by the condition in some way. Because what happens is at the back of the eye, you have the retina, and the retina has blood vessels and it has all these structures in it that you know nourish the retina and it, it contributes to a healthy vision but when you when we have diabetes these blood vessels are affected and that can cause you know issues with vision so if you're able to catch the progression of the diabetic retinopathy you can then put in measures in place to prevent vision loss but if that isn't caught early, if one waits until maybe they start seeing their vision go away, then it's difficult to do anything because it's, it's, it's generally an irreversible condition, especially for those who are not necessarily in a place where they can afford to go through the ophthalmology or it's the, the ophthalmologist or um Maybe they don't live closer to an ophthalmologist. So what we're building at AIRIS is a tool that allows primary care physicians who otherwise don't have eye expertise, right? Just your general practitioner. 
we're enabling these primary care physicians to offer vision screening services by leveraging machine learning and low low cost imaging using our special tech imaging technique that's loaded on a headset. So the system has a software component and has a hardware component and enables non-experts to now offer eye screening services. And it applies to the, you know, the massive percentage of people with diabetes who normally don't get their eyes checked. Interesting. So is it is it more like a software that they, like you said, it can be for any practitioner. So is it some something that they kind of utilize like Olera or is it something they kind of purchase uh, and they um, like a physical product and, and it uses it to screen or how exactly does it work? Yeah. So this is, this is a device, but it's a device that works with the software as well. Gotcha. Right. So it's, it's a software, hardware, hybrid, and they're both equally as important because if you capture the image and you can't interpret it, then it really, you know, is, is of no use. But at the same time, if you just have the software and you can't capture the image, then it's difficult to do anything with it. And to get a sense about like why this is so pivotal, in the current standard of care, you have these tabletop imaging systems that are used by eye care specialists, like ophthalmologists and optometrists. And you go there, you push your head, right? And they, they visualize your back of your eye. This is generally, they use either these machines called slit lamps, or they use OCT machines, or they use laser scanning machines. But either way, they're these tabletop machines are incredibly expensive and they generally require an expert to operate. What we're doing is we, we're offering that same functionality in a much more compact device that doesn't require an expert. So we're especially targeted in the screening for these diseases so that if you flag as positive, we can then recommend that you know you take the next steps and so forth. So you know, I, I think understanding that, understanding what exists before our technology is is important in understanding its 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 importance. But yes, it is a hardware device that has a software component that leverages deep learning in order to classify the images or just let's say label it as diabetic retinopathy or not diabetic retinopathy. Interesting. And uh, I know that's with Olera, that's just an issue that unless you're like you said, you have diabetes or you're directly affected. It's just one you don't think about. Sadly enough, like you're saying, it's one of those that you don't know most times until it's too late. So I want to shout out TJ and his team for really ushering in like kind of the next era of medical innovations, especially happening on such a wide scale uh, from Texas A&M. Um, so it's it's fantastic to be able to speak with you, TJ, and learn a little bit about you and your team and how y'all are driving innovation in the medical care space. If you're interested in learning more about TJ and, and his initiative with Olera, you can head on over to txinnovators.com. You can type in Olera. That'll be O-L-E-R-A in that search bar, and you can read everything you'd like to know about TJ and his his brand. Uh, I'd like to thank you again for joining us today, TJ, and stay tuned because it's not the last time you will see Mr. Falahoon on Texas Innovators. <music>
Innovation never sleeps.